Talk about the Greens, that bunny, that bunch of idiots. Hey there, Climactic Collective listeners. I'm Emerald Moon. And I'm Tom Bella. And together we host Serious Danger. A podcast about Australia's broken political system and its greatest threat. The Australian Greens. (laughs) It's a show about green politics in Australia. The kind of politics that puts people and the planet before profit. We talk to cool and interesting people about fighting for good shit, like taxing billionaires. Housing for all. Workers' rights. First Nations justice. And drugs. Sweet, sweet, sweet drugs. Join us on Serious Danger every Sunday. You can subscribe to us anywhere you get podcasts. You can find us on Patreon. We're at Serious Danger AU on the socials. Or just head to SeriousDangerPod.com. That's Serious Danger with me, Emerald Moon. And me, Tom Ballard. Do you think we need something at the end there? Um, Go green. (laughs) (laughs) Echoes from the oil crisis of nearly 50 years ago can still be heard today and are still used as reasons why we should not believe, we should not put any faith in what's happening with the climate crisis. Deniers say that if we got a matter so important to humanity wrong then, we can do it again, and we can do it with the climate crisis. What they don't understand or refuse to accept is that the oil states had actually shut down the oil supply, so there was actually not a problem with the amount of oil available, it was more so about them not supplying it. A wholly and totally different issue than the climate crisis. But it's still ammunition for the deniers, and it still gives them comfort, makes them feel better and allows them to go on thinking that the climate crisis is not real. Welcome to this latest episode of Climate Conversations. Within that quick climate link, I am your host, Robert McLean. Climate Conversations is assembled here in Shepparton, in northern Victoria, Australia, on the lands of the Yorta Yorta people, and I pay my respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. Let's listen out a short piece from Canary about the oil crisis, and you'll find a link to this in the show notes. We're in an energy crisis now, and will be for some time to come. We cannot produce as much as we are equipped to use in our homes and our factories. This situation is destined to continue indefinitely. And by indefinitely, I mean not only just the next few years, but as far ahead as we can see. By the 1970s, America was grappling with a new reality. We were no longer producing more energy than we consumed. And in 1973, when Arab countries cut off petroleum exports to the US, the price of oil quadrupled. People couldn't get access to gasoline and our economy shrunk. One out of every seven gallons of oil we'd been using to power our homes, our cars, our businesses, and our schools just wasn't there anymore. This was the Arab oil embargo, and it was framed almost entirely as a supply problem. The amount of energy we were consuming was irrelevant. We just needed to find new ways to feed demand. In the early 70s, when the Arab oil embargo broke on the world like a thunderclap, the energy problem was thought to be, where do we get more energy, more of any kind from any source at any price? It was entirely supply side we must be able to cope with future emergencies. Next, we shift to a story from America's National Public Radio that tells us about how a leading Ukrainian climate scientist explains how climate change relates to the invasion of Ukraine. You'll find a link to that story in the show notes. 
In the days before Russia invaded Ukraine, a leading climate scientist, Svetlana Krakowska, was in Kyiv racing to finish a landmark UN climate report. Then, Russian missiles and bombs started landing in her city. Colleagues offered to help her escape, but she stayed, trying to continue her climate research. Krakowska argues that these two issues are connected, that climate-warming fossil fuels have enabled Russia's invasion. You can hear Bill Putman, the climate scientist from NASA, Talk about a year with CO2. It's the voiceover from a YouTube clip, but it's much better to watch the clip itself, and you'll find a link to that in the show notes. Hi, this is Bill Putman. I'm a climate scientist at NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center. What you're looking at is a supercomputer model of carbon dioxide levels in the Earth's atmosphere. The visualization compresses one year of data into a few minutes. Carbon dioxide is the most important greenhouse gas affected by human activity. About half of the carbon dioxide emitted from fossil fuel combustion remains in the atmosphere, while the other half is absorbed by natural land and ocean reservoirs. In the northern hemisphere, we see the highest concentrations are focused around major emission sources over North America, Europe, and Asia. Notice how the gas doesn't stay in one place. The dispersion of carbon dioxide is controlled by the large-scale weather patterns within the global circulation. During spring and summer in the Northern Hemisphere, plants absorb a substantial amount of carbon dioxide through photosynthesis, thus removing some of the gas from the atmosphere. We see this change in the model as the red and purple colors start to fade. Meanwhile, in the Southern Hemisphere, we see the release of another pollutant, carbon monoxide. This is a gas that's both harmful to the environment and to humans. During the summer months, plumes of carbon monoxide stream from fires in Africa, South America, and Australia, contributing to high concentrations in the atmosphere. Notice how these emissions are also transported by winds to other parts of the world. As summer transitions to fall and plant photosynthesis decreases, carbon dioxide begins to accumulate in the atmosphere. Although this change is expected, we're seeing higher concentrations of carbon dioxide accumulate in the atmosphere each year. This is contributing to the long-term trend of rising global temperatures. The Orbiting Carbon Observatory 2, or OCO2, will be the first NASA satellite mission to provide a global view of carbon dioxide. OCO2 observations and atmospheric models like GEOS-5 will work closely together to better understand both human emissions and natural fluxes of carbon dioxide. This will help guide climate models toward more reliable predictions of future conditions across the globe. Don't forget there'll be a link to that presentation in the show notes. 
Now we shift to Tuvalu. Well, not Tuvalu, in fact, we're going to Glasgow, but it's a presentation by the nation of Tuvalu at Glasgow. This was unique and certainly worth watching. Again, this is the voiceover, and you need to see the YouTube clip to get the full impact. It is my great honour to be speaking to you today, and I do not take for granted this opportunity to speak to you in Glasgow as you discuss the fate of the world and the fate of small island states, including those in the beautiful Pacific region. Climate change and sea level rise are deadly and existential threats to Tuvalu and low-lying atoll countries. We are sinking, but so is everyone else. In Tuvalu, we are living the realities of climate change and sea level rise as you stand watching me today at COP26. We cannot wait for speeches when the sea is rising around us all the time. Climate mobility must come to the forefront. We must take bold, alternative action today to secure tomorrow. We've reached the end of today's quick climate links, or at least the audio of today's episode. Please don't forget to check out the show notes, as you'll find lots of links in there that will help you better understand the climate crisis and how you should respond. So until we talk again, I urge you all to take care, stay safe, and please be kind, for everyone you meet is fighting a great battle. (music) 